Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. And now, it's time for Serralo Sports Talk with Joe Serralo. this party started it's time for Serralo sports talk with me joe Serralo, right here right now for the next hour leading you up until game four of the world series tonight in philadelphia on your national airwaves as part of the believe hour we're gonna get to it all we're gonna get to the nfl trade deadline we're going to get to the initial college football playoff rankings of the season and of course a couple top 10 sec matchups i've got bets for you four and oh each of the last two episodes of Serralo Sports Talk, I've given out two best bets, and I have gone 4-0. and So just a reminder, if you want more betting content from me, hit me up on the socials, on Instagram, at Joe Serralo, on Twitter, at the Joe Serralo. Tons of betting content, weekly, if not daily, up on my social pages. Go check them out. Let's dive in to this World Series, though. The Philadelphia Phillies up on the Houston Astros, 2-1 to through three games. We are less than an hour away from first pitch. Game four of the World Series, and who could have seen the Phillies in this position? 87 wins in the regular season. Clinched a playoff spot on the second to last day. Did not belong here, right? Got that sixth playoff spot the first time in a non-COVID shortened season. The MLB has ever had six playoff teams from each league, and the Phillies have turned that into a World Series appearance and now a World Series lead. Game three was a disaster. For the Houston Astros. Game three could not have gone any worse for the Houston Astros than it did. From the start, from the very beginning, from the first inning, Lance McCullers Jr., a guy who we all know has great stuff, has been an instrumental part of this Houston Astros team and its success for the past six years. Lance McCullers Jr., who has been no stranger to the big stage, the guy's gone out there and he's closed out World Series for Houston. He's pitched in important Game 7s. He's clinched important series for the Astros. Lance McCullers did not have it from the start. And the Phillies knew he didn't have it. In fact, the Phillies knew exactly what was coming from the start. Lance McCullers may have denied it in his postgame presser after that awful Game 3 gutless appearance from McCullers and the rest of his team. No one, no one on Houston showed any signs of life last night, whether it be the coaching staff or the players, but McCullers can deny it all he wants. He was tipping his pitches. The clips are out there and the Philadelphia Phillies, they knew what was coming and they capitalized. They pounced on McCullers. They saw the clips. You and I saw the clips, right? He had a higher leg kick for his curveball, and, and, you know, make no mistake about it. The guy's got a good fastball, but his breaking stuff, his off-speed stuff, is what makes him the effective pitcher that he is. And he was tipping his curveball. Bryce Harper saw it. Bryce Harper jumped on it. He went and told Alec Bohm, hey, higher leg kick for the curveball, lower leg kick for the fastball. Bohm came out in the next inning, hit a solo shot, made it 3-0. Marsh compounded on that. And you saw not only the incredible clip of Harper talking to Bohm right after Harper uh, touched home, crossed home plate on his home run, but then you saw Bohm and Marsh in the dugout after Bohm hit his home run. And then Marsh goes out there, and he takes him deep. Three home runs, four runs allowed, one time through the lineup for Lance McCullers. There was no coincidence there, folks. McCullers might say, I wasn't tipping my pitches. They just had a really good game. Maybe that's the right thing to say. 
but Philly knew exactly what was coming. You saw it when Harper went to talk to Bohm. You saw it when Ken Rosenthal tried to get an answer out of Bohm, which look, I mean, to an extent, I get what Rosenthal was doing there. You're always going to try to get the answer. There was no way Alec Bohm was telling him what the hell was going on, right? There was there was no shot in hell he was divulging that information. You saw it with his little smirk, with his smile after Rosenthal asked him the question. Of course, he wasn't going to give up an answer. But McCullers didn't have it. Phillies bats, I mean, this this lineup is a juggernaut, right? You can say whatever you want about this Philadelphia Phillies team. Enough with the ultimate underdog storyline, right? I know that they won 87 wins. That's not because they overperformed and they don't have a talented roster. This Phillies team underperformed terribly in the regular season. This Phillies team has the fourth highest payroll in Major League Baseball. A couple off seasons ago, they spent three quarters of a billion dollars getting JT Real Muto, Bryce Harper. Then they brought in Nick Castellanos, Kyle Schwarber, this Phillies team, Zach Wheeler, right? That contract after Brody Van Disaster, when he was the Mets GM, said Wheeler wasn't worth what the market was uh, was going to give him. Philly went out and Wheeler's been worth it each of his four years that he's been uh, pitching for the Philadelphia Phillies, right? This roster is constructed with high price, big B free agents. And I mean, a couple homegrown guys sprinkled in, right? Like Aaron Nola, of course, tremendous homegrown pitcher for the Phillies. He's going game four tonight. Reese Hoskins, who after having a pretty bad regular season, his bat has come alive in a tremendous way. I mean, he's got what, five home runs this postseason, four of them, if not all five of them at Citizens Bank Park, where the Philadelphia Phillies, oh, by the way, are yet to lose a postseason game this year. It's this Phillies team is not the ultimate underdog storyline that people want you to believe they are, right? They're not the 2014 Royals who came out of nowhere, came back after, you know, being down multiple runs to the Angels in that 2014 wildcard game, and then went to the World Series where ultimately the Giants took care of business. These two teams, you know, these examples are not the same. The Philadelphia Phillies had a terrible regular season, underperformed drastically, but this is this is where they're constructed to be. I'm not saying that they should be here. I'm not saying that they're better than the Dodgers, the Braves, the Mets even, but this Philadelphia Phillies team, fourth highest payroll in baseball, they're constructed to be a World Series team. Now on the other side, the Houston Astros. I've got to call someone out who I love, who I don't want to call out, but it's it, he needs to be held accountable. I don't know what Dusty Baker was doing in game three. I don't know what Dusty Baker was doing in game one. I don't know why Dusty Baker is so insistent on riding with his starting pitchers, whether they have it or not, in game one and game three's cases, obviously when they don't have it, why he's insistent on pushing them to get through at least five when he has the best bullpen in baseball. And it's not even a matter of using up you know, your late inning guys who you might need for a close game for a win, guys like Ryan Stanek, Ryan Presley, uh, Bobby Abreu, Rafael Montero. No, 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 no. It's the fact that the Houston Astros have three starting pitchers in their bullpen, and they can afford to bring in one of them when Lance McCullers clearly from the get doesn't have it. I, I said, I, I took to Twitter at the Joe Serralo and said that Lance McCullers needed to be pulled in the second inning after he gave up that home run, not to Brandon Marsh, but to Alec Bohm. And Bryce Harper and Bohm were seen an inning prior in the first having that conversation. I said, enough is enough. Something's up. It's time to pull Lance McCullers. And who did Dusty Baker have? That was an option. Jose Urquidy, who we saw. He pitched the final three innings of that game. Uh, Luis Garcia, who was a tremendous double-digit game winner, starting pitcher for the Astros all year. How about the kid Hunter Brown? I mean, even if you think your team's out of it just to salvage innings, 
Go to one of those guys, ride him for five or six, and have a fresh bullpen the next night and go get him the next night. Instead, he left McCullers in there too long to the point of no return. He let McCullers go out there and give up seven in four innings and some change. I mean, Lance McCullers should not have been afforded the opportunity to let that game get out of hand. Look, I know he settled in in the third and fourth, didn't give up any damage, and then the fifth inning imploded all over again. When that game was 3 nothing, when that game was at the very worst 4 nothing after two innings were over, that should have closed the book on Lance McCullers. Two innings, four earned, and we've all seen it, right? The Astros jumped out to that 5 nothing game one lead. Four runs in two innings in this World Series is not going to guarantee, not going to solidify anything. So this loss is just as much on Dusty Baker as it is on McCullers, as it is on the lineup, as it is on anyone, because the leash was too damn long on McCullers, and Baker and the Astros have the personnel to shorten that leash. Urquidy, Garcia, Hunter Brown, these are guys that no other teams have that many starting pitching options in their bullpen come to playoffs. Guys who are reliable, who can give you five plus out of the pen on a whim's notice, and Dusty just failed to utilize them. And that ultimately, look, I'm not saying Houston's bats would have woken up and they would have roared back, but they would have had some confidence. They would have felt like they had a fighting chance if McCullers was out of the game after two innings. And instead, after the fifth, when it was 7-0, that game was just, it was a dud. It was over. But all the credit to the Phillies, Bryce Harper, I mean, he's been perfect, right? Back-to-back home runs, back-to-back important home runs on back-to-back pitches that he saw at Citizens Bank. His last pitch there that he saw in the NLCS, his first pitch that he saw there in the World Series. It's going to be tough. But tonight, Christian Javier, Aaron Nola, right now, call me crazy, right now I think Christian Javier is pitching better. Aaron Nola can go out there and he can give you seven shutty with 11 Ks any night. He can also get shelled. And that's what he did game one. The Phillies offense was able to fight back, keep him in that one. But Aaron Nola is not the reason they won game one. They didn't win game one because of him. They won it in spite of him. And his home road splits aren't the best. I like Javier in this one. I like the Strohs. I think they're going to even things up tonight. Stick with me, guys. We've got a busy show. You're locked into Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo. All right, back here on Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo, taking you through the hour on your national airwaves as we lead up right until first pitch game four of the World Series just moments away with the Philadelphia Phillies holding a 2-1 lead after last night's thrashing of Lance McCullers Jr., who, of course, was tipping his pitches and the Houston Astros. But we're going to switch over, talk a little college football playoff rankings for a bit because the initial college football playoff rankings for the season came out yesterday and a little bit of controversy, as always. Look, the top team, and I love this, the Tennessee Vols, right? Now, we're going to learn very quickly whether or not Tennessee belonged in that top spot, whether or not Tennessee is a legitimate playoff team. But up until this point, they deserve being ranked number one overall. I mean, look, this Saturday, they're heading down to Athens. They're going to take on the Georgia Bulldogs, the reigning champs. And we're going to learn a whole lot about this Tennessee Vols team. We're also going to learn a whole lot about the Alabama Crimson Tide. Because Tennessee, with their win over Alabama, that's that's the reason they deserve to be number one, right? Georgia... They have a great week one win against Oregon, made an Oregon team that has run the table since week one, uh, that has looked convincingly like the best all-around team in the back in the Pac-12 since week one. Georgia made Oregon look like complete imposters, right? They made Bo Nix look like a nobody. Uh, what did they allow? Three points? Uh, that was an absolute thrashing to start the season, but... We all have short memories, right? That was week one. This is now Tennessee's win over Alabama, much more recent. They deserve to be where they're at because this game between the top-ranked Vols 
and the third-ranked Bulldogs. This is going to determine who likely represents the SEC East going to the conference championship game and who should be probably the number one team in the country throughout the rest of the regular season. I don't see the winner of this game uh, relinquishing that top spot, that top-ranked spot between now and conference championship Saturday. I just, you know, no matter what happens with Ohio State, no matter what happens with Michigan, no matter what happens with uh, Clemson, Alabama, I I don't see the loser, or rather the winner of this Tennessee-Georgia game not being the top-ranked team between now and conference championship Saturday. I just I just don't see it at all. But you look at the rest of the rankings. Ohio State at number two. I think it's right. You know, some people argue Georgia, and I get that. I think, you know, they didn't want to have two teams from the same conference, let alone the same division, be ranked one and two. And you look at Ohio State, and they're the top dogs in the Big Ten, which I think is a very comparable conference to the SEC. I don't think the Big Ten is lacking much far behind the SEC at all. So I think it makes sense. Then you have Georgia three. And again, you know, they could be one. They will be one with a win over Tennessee this week if they pull it off. The controversy to me lies between the fourth and seventh ranked teams in the country. I know Clemson is undefeated. I know Clemson has three wins over top 25 ranked opponents. Clemson's wins over ranked opponents are not nearly as impressive as they should be, or as that stat alone sounds like, right? North Carolina State has overperformed ridiculously. Uh, Syracuse has come back down to earth. You know, they're ranked 20th. North Carolina State's, what, 22nd, 21st right now? I I mean, the ACC is just not a strong football conference anymore. It It just isn't. And so I know Clemson, you know, and maybe I'm contradicting the own, my own argument that I gave for Ohio State holding that number two spot because, you know, they are atop their conference. But I think Clemson in a weak ACC being ahead of Michigan in a really damn good Big Ten is ridiculous. Now, look, I know that the transitive property doesn't apply in sports, right? People always say, oh, but so-and-so beat them and then they beat them, so they should be ahead. No, 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 that, that's not how it works, right? You got to play the games. But I will say this. Look at Ohio State, what they did against Penn State, and the way that they struggled really through three quarters until, you know, shocker, James Franklin's team collapsed in the fourth quarter. It's, you know, same script, new season. Penn State could have had three or four wins over Ohio State under Franklin at this point. Instead, they've only got one because that's what James Franklin does as a coach. His team collapses in the fourth quarter. But Ohio State struggled immensely with Penn State. Now, I know it was a road game. I know it was a whiteout at 12 noon on Fox, right? That's tough. A 12 noon road game. I don't care if you're the best team in the country. That is tough. Michigan had the advantage of playing Penn State at home, but that game, while it was tight in the first half, Michigan blew the absolute doors off Penn State as soon as they came out of that locker room to start the third quarter. So you look at the way Michigan played Penn State. They played them better start to finish than Ohio State. Both struggled in the first half. Michigan way more dominant second half than Ohio State. Uh, Michigan's a top four team in the country. Michigan's got a legitimate shot at beating Ohio State. I don't think they will this year. It was great last year when they did it. I don't think the same thing's going to happen this time around, but they've got a legitimate shot. I think Michigan will play Ohio State a lot tougher than Clemson ever could. I think that is a damn guarantee. So Michigan being behind Clemson, I mean, frankly, I think it's ridiculous. And people say, oh, but, you know, Clemson, best team in the ACC, three top 25 wins. No, it's not even a debate to me. Michigan is clearly a better, more competent football team than Clemson. And I'll give you another team that I think should be 
ahead of Clemson. I won't say Alabama because they do have the one loss. So I'll give Clemson being undefeated. I'll give them some credit there. I think TCU is a better football team than Clemson. I think TCU has a better quarterback than Clemson. I think TCU right now, their offensive scheme is nearly unstoppable. I think that the TCU Horned Frogs, if they were Oklahoma, would be ranked fourth right now. I think that it's strictly a matter of branding for the reason that they're ranked seventh. First off, why are they behind Alabama? TCU's undefeated ahead of their conference. Alabama's not undefeated. They, they've got a loss. They're the third ranked team in their own respective conference. TCU should be top six. I don't know if I'd have them ahead of Michigan necessarily. I think for me, TCU should be ranked fifth. If I was doing this, I'd probably go Tennessee, Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan, TCU, Clemson, Bama. Those would be my top seven. To have TCU at seventh is just disrespectful. I mean, even look at the way that they played Kansas State, right? Maybe you look at that and you say, well, you know, they were ranked much higher than Kansas State and they were down 28-10 in that one. Yeah, well, two things to that. First off, they were down 28-10. What did they do? They came roaring back and they beat them 38-28. And, oh, by the way, what did Kansas State do the very next week? They went out there and they dismantled a top 10 Oklahoma State team, beat them 48-0, right? The Kansas State Wildcats are legit. And the fact that they're home dogs this week against Texas, I think is absolutely absurd. I think that the Kansas State Wildcats forget covering the three points. They're going to beat Texas at home. And I feel bad for Texas. I truly do. Because this was a big year under Sark with Quinn at quarterback. Texas is back. B. John Robinson, far and away the best running back in the country. Texas had Alabama on the ropes. I mean, if they win that game, who knows what it does for their confidence. Maybe they don't lose to Oklahoma State. Maybe they, I mean, I bet you they don't lose to Texas Tech if they win that Alabama game, right? Texas right now, if if they were able to pull that Bama game off, they're probably a one-loss team, if not undefeated. But they didn't pull it off. They're five and three. They're far and away the best five and three team in the country. I think they're going to be five and four in a few days. And I will say they'll be the best five and four team in the country. No question, no doubt about it. I think Kansas State at home in the Little Apple in Manhattan, Kansas is going to beat Texas on Saturday, especially because you odds makers out there made them field goal home dogs. When are you going to learn? When are you going to stop disrespecting this team? I mean, look, I said Bijan Robinson is the best running back in the country. Deuce Vaughn, how you doing? He's number two, and he's going to be playing with a chip, and he's going to be playing at home, and they're going to have the crowd on their side, and their defense just shut out a dynamic Oklahoma State offense that put up, what, 38 points on Texas when they beat them a couple weeks ago? Kansas State held them to a goose egg. I mean, teams don't get shut out in college, right? Kansas State's defense, uh, their ground game, I think it's going to give Texas absolute fits on Saturday. So we're going to learn a lot about these Kansas State Wildcats. But that's the third best game of the day. And I've already mentioned the best game of the day, Tennessee, Georgia. Well, there is another top 10 SEC matchup. And it's one of my favorite games in sports, let alone in college football. When you get Alabama heading down to Baton Rouge to take on LSU under the lights. Look, this rivalry is great every year, no matter what, no matter how the teams are playing. This game for me is so much better when it's played in Death Valley and Baton Rouge as opposed to when it's played in Tuscaloosa. I cannot wait. I'm going to be so glued to this game. Look, I think Bama's a dash overrated at six. We saw the troubles that they had with Texas. We saw them lose, give up 52 points. Very uncharacteristic of a Nick Saban team against the Tennessee Vols. LSU, this is not a team I was buying into. You know, I'm not buying into, I don't like Brian Kelly. In fact, I'll tell you, I can't stand Brian Kelly. And I thought LSU 
you know, they should have beaten Florida State opening day. They outplayed them and they coughed it up. They choked. And I was like, oh, here's a here's a Brian Kelly eight and four, seven and five. Welcome to the SEC season. Well, what have the Tigers done since then? They've only lost one more game. They were down 17-3 at home to Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss. They roared back, blew the doors off the Rebels to come back and win that one. That I mean, you look at that final score, you'd think it was all LSU start to finish. This game is going to be an interesting game because Bama's defense, as evident in that Tennessee loss where they gave up 52, this is not your typical Alabama defense. I know that they've got maybe the number one overall pick, probably a top three overall pick, and Will Anderson off the edge. But past him, there's just not a whole lot on the defensive side of the football for this year's Crimson Tide squad. And when you've got Jaden Daniels out there and LSU adapting to a different high-octane offense, which you know we saw a couple of years ago with Joe Burrow, his, his last go-around when they went 15-0, and won the national title, right? LSU, the years of the Tigers running the I-formation, those are now long gone. And they've got Jaden Daniels, maybe the most mobile quarterback they've ever had down there in Baton Rouge. They've got an air raid offense. The defense is coming on. I mean, what they did to Ole Miss, Ole Miss didn't get an inch in that second half. I think this is going to be a great game. And I think LSU being a 14-point home dog is absurd, is disrespectful. I think this game is going to be settled by less than a touchdown. Love the Tigers plus 14. If they pull this one off, I mean, my oh my. If they pull this one off against Alabama, all of a sudden, the conversation is there. Could LSU, with two losses, work their way into the playoffs? Of course, they'd have to run the table. But if they pull this one off against Alabama with the win over Ole Miss, they would be in the driver's seat in the SEC West to get to the conference championship game. It's absolutely absurd. It's why college football this time of year, once baseball ends, college football is the best. It's better in November than the NFL, but we're going to get to the NFL because the trade deadline was yesterday. So stick with me, Joe Serralo. You're locked into Serralo Sports Talk. We're back here on Serralo Sports Talk with me, Joe Serralo, about halfway through the hour, taking you up to first pitch of game four of the World Series. Christian Javier, Aaron Nola, all set to get things going tonight. We're going to talk a little bit of the NFL trade deadline before wrapping it up, but just looking ahead to game four here. I mean, look, Houston last night, everything that went wrong could have gone wrong, right? Lance McCullers was left in too long. That's on Dusty. He was tipping his pitches. That's on him. Couldn't locate his fastball, so Philly was able to sit on his breaking stuff, which he was able to get over, if not if not too much over the plate and take care of business. It was just the lineup did nothing. You know, once McCullers, and this is where I have an issue with Dusty, once McCullers was allowed to go back out there after the second inning, when I thought he should have been done after Bohm's homer, let alone after Marsh's, when it was 4 nothing after 2, him going back out there, the fifth inning was when the major implosion happened, goes from 4 nothing to 7 nothing, and that's when you could just see that the team lost its heart, right? That was such a turning point for Houston, because especially... If you look at who the Astros had due up in the top of the sixth inning, where they had the heart of their lineup due up, it could have been 4 nothing with Jeremy Pena, Jordan Alvarez, and Alex Bregman, followed by, of course, Kyle Tucker, due up in that top of the sixth, four-run game, not an insurmountable lead with four-plus innings left to play. Instead, it became 7 nothing. The Astros' heart was taken out of it. Their souls were ripped out of their bodies. And the rest is history. But game four tonight, we've seen this Houston Astros team battle back from adversity. We've seen them game one, pounce on Philly, jump up to a 5-0 lead, only to eventually lose it in extra innings. We've seen them battle back. That was the first game they lost all postseason, 
What do they do game two? Right out of the gates, bottom of the first inning, double, 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 Altuve, Pena, Alvarez, got him on the board early, got him on the board often, and the Astros blew Philly, blew their doors off in that game two on Saturday night. So they've, ba- they've bounced back already from the first adversity they've seen all postseason. They've bounced back this series. I think they're going to do it again tonight. I think Christian Javier is the perfect guy to have on the mound to do that. And Aaron Nola, you know, I said it briefly in my monologue earlier, Aaron Nola is a guy who at times can go out there and look like, you know, as dominant a pitcher as exists in Major League Baseball, and at times can go out there and look like he's tossing batting practice. This game is so, so huge for Houston tonight because if they're able to beat Philly's, you know, supposed ace, right, their game one starter for the World Series, they're able to do that and to pounce on Nola and even this thing up, they've got their ace. They've got Justin Verlander, game five, with the right to go back to Houston, going up against Noah Syndergaard. And I can't see, I can't imagine Noah Syndergaard gets more than one turn through Houston's lineup. He started a game against San Diego, got one turn through the lineup. That's the plan with Noah. Or rather, that might that might not have been San Diego, excuse me. That was against Atlanta in, I believe, the clincher, the Game 4 clincher against the Atlanta Braves in the NLDS. He was able to go once through the lineup, did so effectively, but then got pulled, and then it was a bullpen game. Probably going to be the same deal here in Game 5 tomorrow night. So for Houston, look, you, you can't go down 3-1, right? We already know the winner of Game 3, when a series is tied 1-1, goes on to win the series 65% of the time, whether it's a CS, whether it's a World Series. You can't go down 3-1 here. You can't compound on last night's disaster. Javier can go out there, can be the stopper, can save the day, and then pitching-wise, you've got an advantage the rest of the way, especially... If you get to Philly's bullpen tonight, if you're able to knock Nolan, and we've seen Nolan even in games where he gets shelled, eat innings, right? We've seen him give up five runs and go seven. I, th- I think he gave up five and went five ultimately in game one of the World Series. If you can get Nola out of there early and get to Philly's bullpen tonight, then all of a sudden tomorrow night when you know they're going to need their bullpen with Syndergaard on the bump, you've got a huge advantage having Verlander go out there. He's got to right the ship at some point. It'll be his ninth World Series start. He's got to get that first elusive World Series win of his career at some point of his first ballot should be unanimous Hall of Fame career. I I think tonight's game is just so huge because they can go from down to one with a win tonight. If they fight back, if they bounce back, they find, you know, they fight that adversity. I think that they can go from down to one to up 3-2 going home, and then you've got Framber Valdez game six and whoever the hell you want, Dusty, in game seven. So game four tonight, I think the Astros are going to do it. Uh, I just, I, I can't see Houston coming up short a third straight appearance in the World Series. First, it was the Nationals. Last year, the Braves, they were favored heavy in both of those World Series. I, I just, at some point, it's got to give the Astros have the best roster I think I've ever seen in my lifetime. One to 26, it, it's just I know Philly has that destiny thing working, but the Astros at some point, they've just got to be too damn good to lose this World Series. I think that tonight is going to be a massive game. And I will tell you this, and I'll tell you this with certainty. Whoever wins tonight is winning the World Series. Whoever wins this game four, I mean, if Philly wins, if they go up 3-1, good night, sayonara, see you later, Houston. Disappointment. If the Astros win, they're winning game five as well. And I don't know if they win it in six or if they win it in seven, but they'd win the World Series if they win tonight. It all comes down to this, Christian Javier, Aaron Nola. But I promised we'd talk a little NFL trade deadline, and we've got about seven and a half minutes left to do so. So let's jump into it, because I want to talk winners, I want to talk losers, and I want to talk the Green Bay Packers. I mean, the Green Bay Packers, let's start right there. 
Could this season be any more of a disaster for the Green Bay Packers than it's been? They lost Devontae Adams in the offseason. Goes to Vegas, demands you know that he gets out of uh, that he gets out of Green Bay. Goes reunites with his old college quarterback at Fresno State and Derek Carr. Now that's been a disaster. I'm sure Devontae is regretting that because I can confidently say if Devontae Adams stayed in Green Bay, that solves a lot of their offensive woes. But he's not there anymore, and the Packers are three and five. They've lost to the Giants. They went up on Sunday night. We're getting their doors blown off by Buffalo until a couple Josh Allen mistakes in the second half let Green Bay have a somewhat respectable final score, a 10-point loss, and ultimately a cover when they were 10.5-point dogs. But they're just they are not a good football team. You know, all the talent that they have, that defense is littered with first and second-round picks. And, I mean, the defense is it's playing all right, right? They haven't been awful. Jari Alexander's having a tremendous season. He's just one of the best cornerbacks in the league. But the defense, you know, for all the talent that they have on that side of the ball, they're playing fine. You know, they should be playing great. The offense is, they just, they don't have a clue. And I'm laughing at this because, you know, Matt LaFleur, everyone when he came out and in his first two seasons with Green Bay, led them to back-to-back 13-win seasons. Everyone's talking about Matt LaFleur like he's, you know, Sean McVay-esque, like he's the next coming, like he's this great coach. And it's the same argument I've made numerous times when it comes to Nathaniel Hackett and the dumpster fire that is his first year as a head coach in Denver. Anyone can be an offensive coordinator when you've got Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams on your offense, right? And Matt LaFleur is showing that you don't have to be a great head coach to win 13 games when you have the truly special once-in-a-generation connection that was Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams. And then, of course, you know, Valdez, Scantling, and Lazard as your two and three, Aaron Jones coming out of the backfield, right? Like, Devontae Adams being that number one target was so instrumental in Green Bay because whether or not he was putting up 200 yards a game, he was drawing all of the attention from the defense to enable other guys, Aaron Jones in the past game, MVS, Lazard, to enable them to have their moments when it was due. Now that he's gone, Valdez Scantling, of course, gone as well, it's like Green Bay, uh, they have no rhythm on offense. They have no identity. They've still got a great athletic star, underrated running back in Aaron Jones, but, I mean, if he's the only guy that the defense has to stop, they're going to stop him. And by the way, Aaron Jones has actually put up really good numbers this year, but the game planning has been disastrous, and LaFleur has not gotten, gotten him involved enough He has not gotten enough touches. They showed a graphic a couple weeks ago. When he gets more than 15 touches, the team wins like 90 uh, 90 plus percent of the time. Why Aaron Jones isn't getting double-digit carries a game, it's beyond me. But Green Bay has done nothing. They're my biggest loser at the trade deadline because they stood pat. They didn't give Aaron Rodgers any more weapons to work with. You had guys out there you could have gotten. You could have gotten Brandon Cooks. You could have gotten Jerry Judy. You could have given him options. You could have given him weapons. DJ Moore down in Carolina, I'm sure, after the debacle this week, would have been an easy sell. It's like Green Bay stood pat, and they might stand pat to the point where they miss the playoffs because they have nothing going on. But let's let's look at the bright side, right? Let's look at some winners. My biggest winner is not the San Francisco 49ers. It is not the Minnesota Vikings. They're my second and third biggest winners, respectively. But the Miami Dolphins are my biggest winner of this year's trade deadline. And it's not necessarily for the obvious reason that is Bradley Chubb. Now, I think that that was a huge deal. I think that that trade is going to help what's been a really shaky Dolphins secondary this year. Now, Miami, look, we all know that the way that they schematically have played football this year, they blitz a ton. 
And in past years, it seems like that would be fine, right? Xavier Howard has been one of the best cornerbacks in the game for the past half decade. This year, he's been really mediocre. I'm sorry to call it what it is, but he has not been great. He, there have been times this year where he has not even looked good. And so for Miami, that secondary needs a lot of help. Now with the Bradley Chubb edition, maybe they don't have to blitz as much because Chubb has a top three win rate one-on-one in the National Football League this year. Trails Micah Parsons, who's just on another planet. He's, you know, atop that category. But Chubb has been fantastic this year one-on-one. Get him out of Denver, out of that dumpster fire with Russ Wilson. And I'm at the point I can't even say Russell Wilson's name without laughing just because the guy is is a walking internet meme. I mean, the guy's a joke. Let's call it what it is. But you get Chubb out of there. You put him on a winning team with a winning culture, with a really good coach, a player's coach in Mike McDaniel. And speaking of Mike McDaniel, it's the other trade they made that to me propels them to being the top team, the number one winner on deadline day over San Francisco. It's a trade they made with San Francisco. It's the Jeff Wilson trade. I absolutely love that Jeff Wilson deal for the Miami Dolphins. Look, I've known Jeff Wilson since he was in college at North Texas. Not only is he a great guy, he is a great running back. And he went undrafted when he should have been, I thought, a fourth round draft pick coming out of North Texas. I said that. I'm on the record saying that five years ago. Jeff Wilson had potential from the start. It was finally tapped into in San Francisco under who? Under Mike McDaniel as offensive coordinator. You know, they've had a lot of injuries to their backfield in recent years. And Wilson has always started the year number two or number three on the depth chart. And he's always gotten meaningful touches. He's always been a good goal line option for the 49ers. He's always had games where he busts things open. Maybe not every week, but two, three times a year. Jeff Wilson going into a great platoon system in Miami where he's got his other former 49er in Raheem Mostert that he'll be sharing carries with Mostert on pace for a career year. You have Mike McDaniel, Raheem Mostert, and Jeff Wilson in that backfield. And let's not lie. Let's not make this out to to be something it isn't. It's a pass-first team, right? Jalen Waddle, Tyreek Hill putting up absurd numbers. By far the best wide receiver one-two punch the league has this year. I mean, Tyreek Hill through eight games, through games where he's had Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback, through games where he's had third-stringer Skylar Thompson at quarterback, Tyreek Hill has 960 yards. He's on pace for a Cooper Cup-esque season from a year ago. There is potential. There is legitimate potential, folks, for Tyreek Hill to have a 2,000-yard season. So you've got Tyreek Hill. You've got Jalen Waddle. You've got Mike Gusecki, who finally is coming out a little bit. He's a great touchdown target for the Miami Dolphins. And then you give him a two-headed backfield beast in Raheem Mostert and Jeff Wilson. And this offense that Miami has down there, defense still needs work. Chubb isn't going to solve all their problems, but he's going to help. This offense is all of a sudden one of the scariest, most lethal offenses in the National Football League. The Miami Dolphins, to me, I wasn't all over them. Even when they beat Buffalo, I was not really giving them their propers. Now the Miami Dolphins are as legitimate a threat as exists in the National Football League after their trade deadline. I love it. Look, Minnesota had a great deadline. That Hawkinson deal, they fleeced the Detroit Lions. I don't know what Detroit was thinking, giving away Hawkinson for that little. San Francisco, I I think it hurts him a little, losing Wilson. I love the versatility of him and McCaffrey together, but getting McCaffrey rejuvenates his career, rejuvenates the 49ers season. But Miami, they won that deadline. When we come back, my final word on Sorallo Sports Talk, I'm giving out a best bet, so stick with me, Joe Sorallo. You're locked in to Sorallo Sports Talk. 
All right, it's time for my final word here on this episode, episode 86 of Serralo Sports Talk here on this second day of November in 2022. Can't believe we're two months away from 2023, by the way. That's absolutely wild. I've got, as always, a best bet for all of you out there. And if you want more betting content, including, you know, my weekly Serralo Pick 6, where I give out six NFL picks every Sunday morning, head on over to at the Joe Serralo on Twitter, at Joe Serralo on Instagram. Press that follow button. You'll get betting content weekly, like I said earlier, if not daily when I'm really feeling myself. I mean, right now we're in the stretch of, what is it, 28 days of football games that started, uh, when did that start? Last last Thursday with Thursday Night Football. Now we've got college games on Tuesdays. We've got Maction in the midweek. I, I mean, this is just, this is the best time of year. Like, like I said, baseball's over in a few days. November, I think, belongs to college football. But this is just for football in general, the best time of year. You got the World Series. Football's heating up. I mean, I know the NBA and NHL have started. I'm not fully into that just yet. But I am into making money. So let's get to it. The Green Bay Packers headed to Detroit for the first of two divisional matchups between these teams this year, and they are three and a half point favorites. Pay no attention to that week 18 matchup a year ago. Green Bay had the one seed clinched up. They didn't try. They still almost beat Detroit. Three and a half points for all the Green Bay bashing I just did. For as bad as the Packers are this year, this Lions team is in shambles. And this is a Lions team I was high on early on in the season. This is a Lions team that I loved. Look, they were 1-3, and and they had a point differential of just minus 1. They had a field goal loss to Seattle, right? They had, you know, tight, close losses. A field goal loss opening day to the Philadelphia Eagles, for crying out loud. They played the Vikings tight. They had a commanding 14-point lead over Minnesota at one point in that one. And then, of course, lost at 28-24. They were 1-3 with a minus one point uh, point differential. Since then, they're 0-3 with a point differential of minus 41. They're losing since then by two touchdowns a game. The Lions have been an absolute disaster for the past month. They showed that they have pretty much thrown in the towel on this season by giving away TJ Hawkinson and a couple of picks to Minnesota. I mean, they essentially swapped two fourth rounders for a second and a third and gave them a stud tight end. The Lions have folded. The Packers, even though I don't think they're going anywhere, they're a much better team than the Lions. Green Bay, minus three and a half in this divisional matchup. It's my lock of the week. And just like that, this episode of Serralo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. That does it for episode 86, guys. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.